All right. Well, you're stuck with me again. Sorry. (laughs) Thanks, Cindy. You're so nice. We looked last week at James chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Again, we examined the difference between being a friend of the world and being a friend of God. Now, that was part two of our series. We kind of skipped over part one because Pastor John ruined it again. Or the, that was the first time. He's ruining it this week. Uh, we were going to do part one this week, uh, but because he's not here again, uh, we're shuffling a little bit, so I'm grateful that you're going to bear with us today. We are going to do part one next week, whether he's here or not. So we're going to wrap this up, and we're praying and hoping he's back with us, but we will go on and finish this up. But today we're going to continue with this whole idea of friendship, BFFs, straight talk about BFFs as we also look at the communion table and and what Christ did for us. So I want you to think a little bit. What makes a person a valued friend? What makes a person a valued friend? I want you to think of a a deep friendship, a very special bond that you had. Maybe it's one in the past, maybe it's one now. And just think about who that would be. And what is it about this friendship that makes it special? What is it that makes it unique? Now, think, what were some of the characteristics of your friend that made this unique? I'll give you just a minute. There's a recent article in the Washington Post this past December that described the the fallout of a recent shooting in Knoxville, Tennessee. The shooting was part of a gang-related spree that had begun earlier that evening. A random group of teenagers were hanging out together on a porch and preparing to celebrate the coming holiday, which was just a few days away. And two young men appeared and began shooting randomly into the group. It was in that moment that Xavier Dobson faced a split-second decision. Run away and save himself, or use his body as a shield to protect those around him. And nobody would have blamed him for running away. But Xavier, as survivors would later recall, he sacrificed himself, jumping on top of three teenage girls who were sitting on the porch nearby. And when this had all disappeared and the men had gone, his brother remembers pulling on him, saying, you can get up now. But Xavier never got up because in that moment he was killed by a bullet that struck him in the head. He was the only person among that group who was hit. One of his friends with him that day, Kiara Rucker, had recalled to the press, if it wasn't for Xavier, if he would have just ran off the porch, we would have probably been shot. And another friend that was there posted on Twitter about Xavier. She said, you're my hero. I'll never forget you. According to our good friend Webster in his dictionary, uh, the definition of a friend is a person who you like and enjoy being with, a person who helps or supports someone or something, a person who you like and enjoy being with. It kind of, you know, we have friends and then we have friends, right? And nowadays we have the world of Facebook and everybody, some people we didn't even know have become our friends. Yay, I have a thousand. 
I, I, I don't. I don't know what I have, but they're, they're my buds, I guess. But you contrast that idea of a friend with the idea in Proverbs 18.24, which says that there are friends who destroy each other, but a real friend sticks closer than a brother. And I think some of us can remember some of these real friends that we've had in the past, and maybe we have now some special bonds. So I want you to, what are some characteristics that you came up with, if a few of you just want to share some of those thoughts? Yeah. Honesty. Honesty, it's a good one. Trust. Trust. Loyal, good. Giving? giving? Yeah, they're giving. They didn't judge. Good. Good. Understanding is a big part, yeah. Good. Communicate well. Genuine, a real friend, right? Right. So we're going to look at the person of Jesus today. These are all good things that describe a true friendship. And as we look at Jesus and the friendship of Jesus, you know, what often comes to mind when we think of Jesus are the words Savior and Redeemer and Lord. But he's also a friend, and he identifies himself with it. He identifies himself that way. And the fourfold gospel of the Christian and Missionary Alliance, our denomination, recognizes that identifies Jesus as our Savior, as our sanctifier, our healer, and our coming King, which are all great things. That's the power behind what he did for us. But... I don't know that a lot of us would typically identify Jesus as a friend just when we think about him, right? And so I want to, as we look at him in this way, I want to balance this out because sometimes I, you have people who look at Jesus as one of their friends and it's almost, it's almost an equal type of level, you know? Jesus is my buddy and they forget about his lordship and they can't do that because, you know, you hear some people and they think, well, Jesus understands why I'm going to keep doing this just because, you know, he understands. We're friends. We got this. And that's not the case at all. But so there's a balance here. And Jesus identified himself. We want to get that as a friend. But he is also Lord. And Jesus, cool thing, God and co-creator of this earth, he came down to earth from heaven. And he lived among men for about 33 years. And throughout those years, we see Jesus as Lord. We see him as teacher. And we also see him as friend. And we look at his ministry during the last three and a half years of his life, and a lot of times we pay attention to the crowds, the, the big aspect of his life, you know, his, his healing ministry, casting out demons, his teaching. But much of his time, the majority of his time in that was spent among a small circle of friends and in a group of people he called his disciples. And these are friends that he lived with those three and a half years. He ate with them. He slept with them. Often out in the wilderness, he said, the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He did not. They did not enjoy the comforts of life together. But they're walking from city to city, country to country. They're doing their ministry, enjoying deep discussions of life and death, surely. And they just, they did life together. It was not a casual relationship by any stretch of the imagination. It's way beyond this thing that we would typically call a friendship today. He lived with them. It was much more. And within the pages of the Gospels, I think that we can see the type of friend that Jesus was. And then his example, I think we can discover some of the elements of what makes a friend a true friend. All right? So from the very outset of his journey, we see Jesus as one who saw the potential in people. He saw the potential in people. His disciples were nobodies. 
They were nobodies. They were fishermen, tax collectors, scorned. Some of them were zealots. And from the outside, these men had nothing going for them at all. They really didn't have anything to offer, yet these are the men that Jesus poured his life into. Because he saw not what they were or who they were, but he saw who they would become. He saw who they would become. He saw their potential. And I wonder how many of us can say that we do that. How many of us regularly see beyond where we see people today and who we see them as today and we don't see the potential of who they can become? That's a challenge for me. One of the things when you look at when we look at the Gospels, we see that Jesus was a very patient, a very patient man. You agree? Like, does anybody get kind of just irritated when you read some of the stories in the Gospels? Like, come on, you guys. Like, I get, you know, the disciples were not the brightest bulbs in the bunch, right? We know that, but still, it's like, it's no wonder that at one time Jesus said, how long must I put up with you? Right? Because it's like some of it were ridiculous. Like we look at one example in Matthew chapter 14 of the feeding of the 5,000. And the disciples tell Jesus to send the crowds away to buy food. But Jesus says, you feed them. Remember the story? And he said, but we only have five loaves of bread and two fish. And so Jesus gathers a little bit that they have. He breaks them up and he miraculously feeds 5,000 men not counting women and children, from these five loaves of bread and two fish. Pretty cool. And then when they gathered up all the leftovers, they had 12 baskets left over. Pretty cool miracle. Anybody like to see that? Yeah, that's great. The interesting thing is that in the very next chapter, the very next chapter, this kind of thing happens again. And they're surrounded by another crowd of of 4,000 men this time. And Jesus tells his disciples... I don't want to send them away hungry or they will faint along the way. Hint, right? So what do his disciples say? Like, oh, we remember what you just did. Like, no, they said, where are we going to get enough food to feed all these people? All we have are seven loaves and a few small fish. It's like, hello, did you not just see what he did? It's just kind of crazy. And then you have James and John, the sons of thunder, And, you know, there was a time where they were all walking towards Jerusalem, and they were going to go off into this Samaritan village on the way, and the Samaritan village did not welcome them, you know? So shame on them. But James and John, they asked Jesus all incredulously, like, Lord, should we call down fire from heaven and destroy them? It's like, seriously? You know, Jesus probably was at the point, like, what? Give me your canteen. What are you drinking? Right? I mean, how has you ever, anything that he's ever done suggests something like he would do that. And then you, you have Peter. And he honestly, I wonder sometimes if, if Peter was in the church today, if he would be one of those people that you'd kind of want to keep away from visitors, keep away from people. It's just it's like, hey, can you keep Peter away from the new people so he doesn't scare them off again? You know, because he was great, but man, he just said some of the dumbest things. He had no filter in his mouth. He just did the first thing that came to mind. He said the first thing that popped in there. And it, it, some of the things were ridiculous. Like there was a time where Jesus went up on the mountain, if you remember, and he let Peter, James, and John tag along with him. And he was this incredible thing. He was transfigured. 
and he talked with a couple of dead guys. They're dead for 2,000 years, Moses and Elijah. You know, cool, right? So his face shines and all that is happening. And then Peter just kind of goes, Lord, it's so good that we're here. How about I build you a house? And I'll build one for, for Moses and for Elijah too. Like, really, Peter? <laughs> like, what are you thinking? And the funny thing is that this is in John's gospel. In John, like, he actually makes excuses for him. He says that Peter was just scared and didn't know what to say. Yeah. So he had a lot of patience. A lot of patience. I'm going to, hold on. So Jesus was very patient. Jesus was a servant. He was a servant. We're given the story of how James and John's mother came to Jesus asking him to put her sons in places of honor next to him, one on his right and one on his left. And of course, when the other disciples heard about this, they were indignant, like, how dare you suggest such a thing? But the interesting thing is what Jesus tells them afterwards. Because they're looking for places of honor. They're looking for places of leadership. And Jesus says that you know that the rulers in this world lord it over their people, and officials flaunt their authority over those under them. But among you, it will be different. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must become your slave. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others. And we see this attitude of serving that is characterized all over the life of Jesus. You know, he had times where he was often tired from everything he was doing, and he tried to retreat to isolated places, and that darn pesky crowd kept following him around everywhere. They wouldn't leave him alone. But he would always turn around and he'd take care of the needs of the crowd, serving them. And at the Last Supper, before he was to be executed, he puts this into action in a, a very unique and special way when he washed the disciples' feet. And this blew them away because it's not something that you do. You just don't do that. This is something that only servants would do. And this is the king of kings. This is Lord. But Jesus served. And I wonder, do we have an attitude of serving people, even our friends? Do we just look to our friends to fill our own needs for companionship? And I know I generally don't. I just, I'm looking for friends to hang out with and have a good time. But I think I can learn from Jesus' example here. When you look at the life of Jesus, we see that Jesus equipped them. He taught them. And I get that he was a rabbi. Right? That kind of goes along with the territory. You teach. But you know what? Friends want the best for their friends, right? And I think sometimes we have a lot of knowledge that we've gained over the years. Some of them very hard. We've learned some tough lessons. And we can share those with our friends, teaching them. We may have learned some things in the Bible that will help them in their spiritual growth, learn some personal things. And if we can just take a few moments and teach them and help them along so that they can grow, Wouldn't that be beneficial to pass that on? Jesus, in fact, said to make disciples. He said to make disciples and teach them. We're supposed to do that. So what are we passing on to others to help them grow, to make them better? Are we actively looking for ways to help them grow? I challenge you. When you look at the life of Jesus, we saw that Jesus prayed for them. He prayed continually. We see Jesus constantly going into isolated places to pray. 
And most of that time, we don't really see what he prayed for. But what I think is cool is when we look at the, the Gospel of John in John chapter 17, he's praying, and almost all of that chapter is a prayer for his disciples. And it's pretty cool. I think we get a picture into the heart of Jesus as he uses this, and we know that his other terms of prayer were probably along the same types of lines. He prayed for them. And in Luke, Jesus tells Peter, he said, Satan has asked to sift each of you like wheat, but I have pleaded in prayer for you, Simon. I have pleaded in prayer for you, Simon, that your faith should not fail. And how many of us make it a habit to pray for our friends? Right? I know I see some heads nodding. I could do better. You know, we get together and maybe we're doing home groups and we share our needs and stuff and we pray during that time. But I think as, just as a friend, I could do a lot better just remembering them on a day-to-day basis and praying for them like Jesus did. When we look at the Gospels, we see that Jesus forgave. He was a forgiver. And Peter, if you remember, asked Jesus, how many times must I forgive those who sin against me? Seven? And Jesus is like, no, nice try, Peter. Try 70 times 7. Like, there was not an amount. You just, you forgave. And again, we see that he practiced what he preached, knowing that all along this trail, his life with them, he knew that they would abandon him in his greatest need. They would abandon him. And he told Peter that same night that this happened, I tell you the truth, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny three times that you even know me. And at this, Peter and the others vowed that they would never do that, even if it meant death. I would never do that, Lord. But they all scattered when he was taken. They scattered. They disappeared. Not a single one of them stood with him. And Jesus held no bitterness, nothing at all, He forgave them. He even told Peter earlier that night, when you have repented and turned to me again, strengthen your brothers. Strengthen your brothers. What a selfless way to live. He's thinking about them still. And even knowing Judas would betray him and hand him over, he still calls him friend that very same night. If you remember at that last supper, he turned to Judas and he said, friend, do what you came to do knowing that he was going to walk out of that room and go and turn him over to be executed. How many of us could say that we do the same? How many of us might still be harvesting some bitter or anger towards somebody, something that's been done in the past we just can't let go of? Maybe it's eating us up inside. Let's forgive. And last, and this is probably the most obvious one, is Jesus loved. No surprises there, right? Jesus loved, and I think this is the key to everything that Jesus did because this drove everything that he did. He acted out of his love, and his love is what ultimately ended his life. It ended his life as he gave it up for his friends, for us. His body broken, his blood shed for you and for me and for all who would choose to follow and believe him. There is no greater love, he said, than to lay down one's life for one's friends. And he did that for us. For you and for me, so that we could have life through his death. And Paul says that God demonstrates his love for us. While we were still sinners, 
Christ died for us. Jesus is the friend of sinners. And today we remember his love, a love which was poured out for us through his blood. We all know this, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God sent not the son into the world to condemn the world, but in order to save the world through him. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. And Jesus shared his last supper, not among strangers, but this communion time he shared among friends. And it's a pretty amazing picture. And he invites us to share with him in this today also, as friends. As friends. So today we have an opportunity to remember together what Jesus did as we look at the communion table.